Well, good morning. Hope you're well. For my part, I need to explain what is on my head, posing for a haircut. Went a little tighter than I planned. It is self-inflicted, but uh, sometimes a little, little too much off the top. I don't know if you've ever tried to shave your own head or somebody else's. Uh, as much as you run the guard over your head, oftentimes you'll still have little pricks of hair that stand up. And I found that in one of my rooms, uh, when I shave it, I see a lot of these hairs in the other one when I shave. It's really clean, and I've always wondered, what, what is that? Is it the lighting in there? What's going on? Is this a special mirror? But this time I found it. And the good room where I always am able to see every little hair I notice behind me reflecting in the mirror is this dark wall. So it exposes every gray hair that sticks up, and I'm able to cut it. So I'm embracing the gray this morning, and that's the story of my haircut. The story in the Bible we're going to look at is from 1 Peter today. Hope you'll turn there with me. We're going to continue in our series called A Living Hope in a Dying World. First Peter, last week, Pastor Sean preached through chapter 3 and he finished it up. We were outside. And uh, as you look forward to next week, remember we're going to be outside next week too from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. All right, so that's next week. Uh, don't come in the morning, come at night. And we'll gather outside like we did before in the nighttime next week. Uh, but this week we're going to do the first six verses of chapter 4 in First Peter today. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I would love to tell a story that introduces this section of First Peter. So let's pray. God, we come now as your children, some as seekers, some is just confused, honestly, about who you are. And I pray you show us this morning in your word, the glory of Jesus by your spirit. Teach us, transform us, renew us in your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Kate had grit. She had an undaunted determination. You would have liked her especially when it came to her kids. Like most good mothers, Kate cared about the educational development of her children, especially her seven-year-old daughter, little Adams. Uh, little Adams, even though she was seven, had some delays. Uh, she was still having trouble reading and writing while all of her peers were excelling in these areas. And it was no wonder little Adams, by the age of seven, had already faced a crippling near-death disease, and also had to deal with the constant shame of her father's failed military career as a captain in the army. So Kate resolved to do something. She wanted little Adams to have a flourishing life, a full life. So she sent her from her home in Alabama to meet a world-famous doctor in Baltimore to see if he could help. And when the doctor saw little Adams, sadly he said, there's nothing I can do for this child. But Kate was resolved, and with the help of the doctor, they decided to travel to one of the greatest creative thinkers in the world at this time, that was Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. And so they arrived there, and yet Bell said, I'm sorry, I can't help little Adam. But Kate was resolved, and so with the help of Bell, she tracked down a special school teacher not a famous man, but Michael was the dean of a small college in Boston. And when they went to see Michael, Michael sang the sad refrain of, there's nothing I can do here. But Kate was persistent. She was resolved. And with the help of Michael, they tracked down one of Michael's old students, a young 20-year-old girl who had just graduated and is determined to become a teacher. Her name was Joanna. And Kate loved Joanna because Joanna had her own grit. You see, Joanna was valedictorian of her high school class, even though she could barely see. And Kate thought, this is a great match. 
for my daughter, little Adams. And so the match was made between the green tutor and the struggling student, a match that lasts 50 years. You see, Kate insisted that Joanna use her special educational system with little Adams, and in that, Adams flourished. When Joanna first met little Adams, she called her the little Bronco because of her attitude. But soon she began to really excel, earning a Bachelor's of Arts from Radcliffe College, also going on to write and publish several books, going on to fight in the women's suffrage movements for workers' rights, even founding her own civil rights club. As for reading, she did quite well. She became fluent in English and German and French and Latin and Greek. What kind of system was this that she used? Well, the system of raised dots on the page that you know as Braille. You see, Kate was determined and resolved that her little daughter, Adams, even though she was both blind and deaf, would live a full, flourishing life so that you now have heard of the little girl named Helen Adams Keller. We love stories like that. Stories of inspiration, stories of overcoming Because we know that it takes a lot of resolve to achieve a full, flourishing life. And that's the concept behind 1 Peter 4 today as we move to it. 1 Peter will say, if you desire to follow Jesus, you must resolve to push through rejections, trials, and sufferings. And that's the terrible good news. It's terrible news. Because we don't like to suffer, right? When I go to the dentist and I have a tooth problem, I say, give me more Novocaine, right? Because I don't like pain. It's terrible news that you're going to have to suffer as a Christian. But it's good news in the sense that this is how you gain Jesus himself. This is how you begin to treasure Jesus Christ, the greatest delight possible in all of the universe. Like Kate Keller, you must resolve to push through trials and suffering and rejection if you're going to treasure Jesus. So that's God's word and call for you today from the scriptures. Resolve to suffer so that you may truly live in Jesus. That's the terrible good news. Now, as we jump back into our sermon series here in 1 Peter 4, I want you to see this. In order to steady your resolve, God is going to give you four components of suffering this morning. God is going to give you four components of suffering in order to steady your resolve. Look at the first one with me from verse 1, the first part of verse 1 in chapter 4, 1 Peter. We read here, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now let's stop right here, because today's paragraph, these six verses we're looking at, is building on what came before. All right, Peter is saying, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, now I've got something to tell you. And that's the next six verses. He's summarizing the end of chapter 3, which Pastor Sean did last week outside for us beautifully. He's summarizing that section by this, Christ suffered in the flesh. And this notion is going to be the foundation for everything he says today. Because of that, let's look back briefly and glance over on the other page at chapter 3. And I just want to look at one verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. To understand where Peter's going today, in verse 18 we read this. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What does he mean here? Well, notice how some of the words in verse 18 match the words in verse 1 of chapter 4, 
All right, you'll see the word suffer in both verses, and you'll see the phrase in the flesh in both verses. In fact, that phrase in the flesh is going to be used four times over the six verses we look at today. What does it mean in the flesh? Well, it means your body, your physical body, but it also encompasses a little bit more than that. All of your bodily existence is what he means when he says in the flesh. So in 3.18, we see the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel that through suffering and the sacrificial death of Jesus, God will bring you to himself. Now, if you think about the gospel, you might not often think about it from Jesus' perspective. But if you think about the story of Jesus from his perspective, think about what happened to him. He suffered, was hung on the cross, he was killed, buried, but then raised by God to life, and then raised by God to heaven to glory. See that pathway from his suffering to glory? That is to be our example today. According to the Bible, according to this text, God's word for you is the pathway of Christ is a pathway of suffering. If you are to attain God and attain glory, you must embrace and resolve to suffer. Jesus is your example. Now, I want to say at this point that as Christians, there's a lot of ways you may suffer in your life. All kinds of things that cause suffering. Could be individual persecution. Could be illness, natural disaster, corporate oppression. All of those things are valid. But in this text, today, God is going to focus on a particular type of suffering. And that is the suffering of self-denial. All right? Denial, suffering. Elsewhere, throughout the Bible, God paints with a broad roller about suffering. But here, he's got a little tiny art brush, and he's speaking specifically to denying yourself and what happens when you do. Now, back in 4, verse 1. Let's hear what he says again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, what? Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Understand what he's saying here. I was talking not too long ago with a missionary in a foreign country, and since we were on a video call, I could see his background, right? And I noticed he was out in his backyard, and his backyard was covered, uh, sorry, it was outlined by a cement wall, a block wall with razor wire on top of it. That was his backyard. I was like, okay, I understand what's going on here. He says, that's nothing. Let me tell you this. When I go out this giant metal gate that serves as the driveway entrance to my house, I come in contact with packs of wild dogs. All right? I don't let my kids go outside of the yard because the wild dogs will bite them. If I go out to jog or to run an errand on foot, I grab a big stick. I arm myself before I go out. And this is what Peter is saying to you today. If you're following Jesus, don't you dare wake up and start to go to work, to go to school, to parent, without first arming yourself with the reality of self-denial for the sake of Christ. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus is your example in this resolve. Now notice so far in the passage, Peter hasn't mentioned what type of suffering he's talking about. I told you as a preview, it's the suffering of self-denial, but Peter hasn't mentioned it yet. It's because he's focusing on your your attitude, your mindset. You must actively arm yourself with the determination to suffer. It is the vehicle God has designed to bring you to himself. In all of this, Jesus is your example to follow. I don't know if you guys follow viral videos online, but I saw one this week about a dog who has achieved 
internet glory. See if you can see this dog here. All right, I don't know if you can tell the setup here. All these dogs are in the same cage. All of them are confused, but one dog, who is a different breed, he has decided to lead the other dogs out of the cage by climbing up. Watch, only one dog is going to do this. The others are running around in goofy circles. And this dog says, oh, I can follow the other dog? Or this guy's got something here. I'm going to follow him out of the cage and I'm no longer trapped. Now, I'm a visual person. That's a funny video. But there is some truth for us here. There's only one way out of this cage. There's only one dog who's a different breed. You can choose to follow the example of all those around you who are caged by their self-indulgences. Or you can follow the only one who is ever going to rise to glory. And that is the example of Jesus Christ through suffering. And you can take heart this week as you experience the pain of self-denial sufferings, you can know that you're following Jesus' path. It's not something you're making up. It's not something that I am whipping out of nowhere. No, you're following Christ himself. You know what that means? It means you can overcome because he overcame. It means you can win because he is the victor. This way of the cross is the only way to succeed in knowing and experiencing true joy in God himself. So, now you see, God not only gives you Jesus as your example in suffering, but we see at the end of verse 1, he also gives us something else. He also shares your purpose in suffering. Let's look at your purpose in suffering. Verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the rest of verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What in the world does that mean? If you were here last week, you heard Peter talking about the flood and Noah and baptism. And it's kind of confusing when Peter writes. What does he mean when whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin? Does he mean that when you suffer, you attain a moral perfection? That you never sin again? That's not really our life experience, is it? We've all known people who suffered who are still mean, grouchy, evil people. Moreover, the Bible tells us in lots of places, but a couple that come to mind, that we will always struggle with sin. James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. More clearly, in 1 John 1.8, we read, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So clearly, when Peter says, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he doesn't mean that when you suffer, you will never sin again. What does he mean then? Well, as one author says, this is what he means. A commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life. A life that's not perfect, but it's remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. All right, so this makes more sense, especially as you roll into verse 2. Read verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's your purpose in the suffering of self-denial. Your purpose is to live no longer for human or sinful passions, desires, goals, urges. You're no longer living for those things, but you are living for the will of God. Now, it might be helpful to think about this like a cookout. Really, every one of my thoughts gets back to food Somehow, you'll find that out. But we just had Labor Day, right? Many of you had a cookout. At least I hope you did with friends. We got together with some friends and had a cookout. And this happens to me. Maybe it happens to you. When I go to the grill, when I go to a cookout, I automatically find myself pulling out my mental Thanksgiving calculator. 
right? So normally with mental math, I'm like Kevin on the office, not too good with it. But when I have my Thanksgiving calculator, I can do complex algorithms and equations and determine the exact amount of food that I can eat of different types to perfectly fulfill my belly, right? Because when you come to a cookout, you cannot have 10 smoked sausages and 10 ribs. It's not going to fit, even for me. It's not going to fit, so I have to do some math. I'm going to have to pass something up. The sausage, which is tasty, but yet inferior to the rib. I'm going to pass those up so I can eat the ribs, right? You've all experienced that, I hope. And here's the moment, the moment when the guy sitting next to you says, hey, pass those sausages, and you grab them, and you pass them, and you smell the hickory, you smell the cold, but you pass them because you got the ribs coming. There is a small moment, if you're human, of loss and overlooking and forsaking. And this is what Peter is trying to get into your head this morning. The root of your self-denial suffering comes from giving up tasty, sinful desires and habits so that you can live for a greater delight. That is Jesus Christ. He's the ribs. (laughs) The suffering comes from forfeiting the pleasure of sin. And sin is pleasurable. The purpose of this forfeiture is to experience the pleasures of God. At Treasuring Christ, we call this Treasuring Christ, right at TCC? That's why we named the church. We call it treasuring Christ, forfeiting the pleasures of sinful passions and honing in on the pleasures of Jesus. Peter's point is you can't do both. You can't treasure Christ and treasure the things of this world. Maybe a more familiar passage to you is Romans 12, verse 2. A lot of people We'll memorize this passage. Paul is going to make the same connection between setting your mind a certain way, having a changed mind in order to do the will of God. Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, chasing the pleasures of sin, right? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That sounds a lot like Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, right? Sounds like Peter here when he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to change the way you think about your pleasures so that by testing you might discern what is the will of God. Just like Peter said, the will of God. What's good? What's acceptable? What's perfect? So not conforming and instead suffering leads to knowing what is good, what is perfect, what's acceptable. You're not living for the thrill of sin. You're living for the thrill of God's will. So what does that mean for you? Well, if you want to love your neighbor, resolve to suffer by putting off sinful passions. You want to evangelize well? It's going to hurt. Prepare to suffer through denying yourself. You want to adopt? You want to serve the vulnerable? You want to teach the children? You want to care for creation? You want to plant churches? You want to use your faith at work? You want to counsel others? You want to lead in worship? You want to do excellent art? You want to live joyfully? You want to make disciples? You must put off your sinful passions and treasure Jesus Christ. You must resolve To suffer through the denial of your natural urges. Now, Peter doesn't know you. And I don't know exactly what you struggle with. Maybe your urge is to go into every relationship. Is the dog here? (laughs) Hey dog, he's back. Dog is going to preach too. Uh, (laughs) Let's watch the dog together a little bit again. Because he's taking over. Ah, he's back. 
back on track. So, the dog knows you, but Peter doesn't. So, you're going to have to apply this to you. What is it that you tend to have as a passion? Is it the passion of wanting to always be right in your relationship? Maybe you always feel like you need to be justified. I don't know. But you do. The Holy Spirit does. The implication here is very clear. There is a type of mamby-pamby, straddling-the-fence type of Christianity that you will be tempted to live. Where you have one foot in the kingdom of God, and then you're striving also to have one foot satisfying your natural passions. And it's never going to work. Jesus tells us this in lots of places. One of those places is Matthew 7. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? He said, you'll know a bad tree because it'll have rotten fruit coming off of it. Okay? Jesus said, the gate to heaven is narrow. The way is hard, said Jesus. Why did Jesus say, the way to God is hard? Because few are willing to deny themselves the passions and pleasures of sin in order to treasure Jesus Christ. Very soberly, at the end of Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what, does the will of my Father who is heaven. Your purpose is to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. So we live in verse 2. We look at verse 2 and we embrace it. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's your purpose in suffering. So Jesus is your example in this self-denial suffering. Your purpose in suffering is to deny your sinful urges so you can treasure Christ. Next, let's look at the types of suffering. Peter is going to share the types of suffering here in verses 3 and 4. Look with me, verse 3. Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. A couple of things here. When you read Gentiles, he's just talking about unbelievers. That's what he calls unbelievers here. Second, when Peter said the time that has passed, the time that has passed, he's talking about your life pre-conversion. In other words, before you became saved, before you were converted, before you knew Jesus, all of your living was not for God. And that is enough time wasted living for sinful passions. You get it? The time that has passed suffices, is Peter's word to you. You've had long enough. And now he's going to list out. The list is PG-13. I didn't invent it. Go to Peter and talk about it. He lists out the actions that come from a heart ruled by sinful desires. Here's the list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now you find these lists elsewhere in the New Testament. We call them vice lists. Let's look at this one. Look at the last thing in the list idolatry. That was something that unbelievers practice. They would actually set up an idol and bow down to it. The Jews didn't practice it that much, but the unbelievers around them would actually bow down to that. You find that in other cultures, but also in our culture today. But the other things mentioned here are really gritty. They have a physical weight to them. A bodily weight. Two things on this list pertain to the use of alcohol, all right? Drunkenness and drinking parties. He's talking about alcohol there. Three more things pertain to the realm of sexuality. Sensuality, 
passions, orgies, sexuality, and drinking are two spheres in your life where your human passions are liable to dominate you and your behavior. You will feel an undeniably strong bodily draw to give in in these areas, to satisfy yourself by abusing sex and by abusing alcohol. These are two arenas of many, but Peter does focus on them for a reason. They're very dangerous. This isn't just some problem that existed in the ancient world. Sounds like my college experience. It's real, it goes on. Peter wants to warn you about it today. He's giving you straight talk. This isn't very complex, right? When it comes to sex, you must deny yourself the pleasures of illicit satisfaction and find your sexual joy in marriage. That's God's will. When it comes to using alcohol, you should know it's physically and psychologically addictive. It can control you. It's better to be controlled by the Spirit. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we back off a little bit from the particulars of this list, I just want to say this. It should be striking to you that when you arrive here today, God knew exactly what He wanted you to hear. You might have lots of suffering in your life. You might have relational stress. You might have suffering from government policies, financial poverty. All of these things can be serious forms of suffering for us. But God has one question from the text here for you today. And here's the question. What sinful passion are you unwilling to give up because it would hurt too much? What sinful passion are you unwilling to give up because it would hurt you too much? Because the pain that you feel when you bypass that passion is the very suffering that God calls you to embrace if you want to embrace Jesus. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. A willingness to suffer. Necessary denial that will hurt. This week, the NFL is starting back. That's happy time for some of you. If you wish to watch the Cowboys defeat the Rams, you can tune in tonight, 8.30. Been my joy here in the community to work with some little kids in the sport of football. That's been fun. I don't do it because I'm a good coach or good at football. I'm just available, so I do it. Anybody can do it. But one thing, even if you don't know football, you'll notice when you watch the game is that people are knocking each other down. It's called tackling, and it's a basic part of football. And when you teach it to children, you'll always notice one thing. If you want to do it correctly and safely, like any sport, you have to use your hips, right? You have to get your power by putting your feet shoulder length apart. Kids watching at home, you can do this. If you're bored with YouTube church, stand up and do this. If you want to tackle well, you have to put your feet out and drop your hips like a squat, right? You got to get downhill. Well, if you ever try to teach this to a kid, most kids don't want to do this because it hurts. Again, if you do squats and you sit like this for a while, it starts to really hurt. So what will kids do? They will inevitably do this. Get this really wide stance because it's easier to drop your hips when you go wide. But what happens in any sport if you have a crazy wide stance, try to move. You can't move at all. You get off balance. You fall. This same principle will apply when you're trying to follow Jesus. It's through pain and hurt and the proper position that you are going to succeed. Especially in the areas of sex and alcohol. You must be careful. You must do this right. 
You must embrace the pain that comes from denying yourself abuse in these areas. Now, the suffering of self-denial is the main type of suffering here, but it's not the only type, okay? If the news weren't terrible enough that Jesus wants you to suffer, there's a derivative suffering that flows from self-denial, a double dose of suffering springing from self-denial that Peter will talk about next. You might call this relational suffering, all right? Look in verse 4. Follow his flow of thought. With respect to this, this is your own self-denial. So with respect to your self-denial, they, unbelievers, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Then what happens? They malign you. It's a smart word for making fun of you. They mock you. They shun you. They ostracize you. When unbelievers catch on to the fact that you are willing to deny yourself sinful passions that they enjoy so that you can enjoy a deeper passion with Jesus, it'll shock them. What? What? Huh? What? 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 You? What? Hey, man, you don't, you don't do this. What's up? And then the shock turns to mockery. You may have felt this. It's very real. What's interesting here is as New Testament scholars and experts look at Peter's writing, there's no real evidence that government, at this time the Roman government, was killing or hurting Christians just for being Christian. All right, A few years later that would start, so Peter would prepare his church for Roman persecution. But when he was writing, it was much like in America today. If you claim Christ in America right now, You're likely not to be locked up and killed, but you are likely to form or experience some type of relational suffering. Friends at work, family, they will ostracize themselves from you. They will separate from you. They will mock and malign you. I've had friendships dissolve over this. At least one job in because of this type of suffering. You should prepare yourself for it. Peter says it's normal. But even still, you must stand with a steady resolve because what you have to gain is so much more than what you have lost. Which moves us to the final point Peter is making here that we've already seen. Jesus is your example in suffering. Your purpose in suffering is to deny sinful urges so you can treasure Christ. The types of suffering, self-denial and also relational. And finally, your gain in suffering. Your gain in suffering from verses 5 and 6. Peter says, but they, and that's the unbelievers, the same ones that participate in what you do not participate in, the same ones who mock you, unbelievers will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now Peter is going to set up what you have to gain by telling you first what believers have, unbelievers have lost. What Gentiles, unbelievers have lost. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers might be popular with their pals. They may amass great wealth through networking at these parties. But all those who give their hearts and lives to sinful debauchery will be judged. Judged by the Son of God Himself. The only one with the credentials to judge the living and the dead is Jesus the Christ who has raised from the dead and defeated it. And this divine judge will find believers guilty of failing to worship their creator. Instead, they've chosen to worship creation. They will be damned to an everlasting hell. Don't miss one point about this passage. When he starts writing about unbelievers going to hell, He's not all of a sudden changing his audience. Okay, he's still writing 
to believers. So evangelize yourself first because Peter is warning you here that you will have weak moments. Let this be a strong motivation in your weak moments knowing that those ones who discriminate against you for denying yourself sinful passion, they are going to be condemned. Don't number yourself in their ranks because they will be condemned. Remind yourself of what's coming. It is judgment. Don't slide over onto that team. That team's going to lose. Evangelize yourself in that way. And then secondly, evangelize your friends. They must hear. There is judgment coming. They must hear the hope of Jesus Christ. He's the only dog that's going to climb out. He's the only one who's going to free people from their condemnation. Their only hope is Jesus. Verse 6 goes into this. What do you have to gain through this self-denial, suffering? Listen to what he says, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, once again, Peter phrases things a little funny when he says preaching to those who are dead. He's not talking about preaching to ghosts or people who are already in grave. What he means is people who once were alive heard the gospel and now they're dead. He's using them as an example because they've already passed through death, which is what we are going to experience. They've already gone through it. So he's looking back and he's saying, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, these believers might live in the spirit the way God does. So pay attention here. Believers are all judged in a couple of different ways. We're all condemned in one sense because our bodies are going to die, right? Death itself is a condemnation. Because of Adam's sin, your earthly body is one day going to stop working. You will die, and that is a judgment in the flesh. There's also another sense that believers feel judgment. Look at this. There's a couple different ways you can respond to Peter's text here today. One response, some of you, as you sit here and you read the Bible, you're going to be wrecked by a heavy guilt. When you see a list that talks about drunkenness or sexual immorality or idolatry, you are pierced because you know you have been guilty and you hate that part about yourself, right? That's one response to this text. Others of us may have a different response. We might say, well, according to this list, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not a drunkard. Don't touch the stuff. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't have little idols. I'm all right. You then are in danger of being guilty of self-righteousness. Because you know full well you've had a million separate moments where you have treasured creation more than your creator. You've treasured anything and everything more than you've treasured Jesus. So you stand judged in that way. For this reason, we all stand judged in the flesh. Let that sink in. Peter is saying we are all judged in the flesh. Now enter the hope of verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. Jesus is the great solution to you standing in condemnation. You deserve death, but the sacrifice of Jesus makes you alive and brings you to God, even into God's family. You feel judgment? He screams sonship. You feel judgment? He screams Sonship. That's nothing but good news. You need to take that in. Because you may know your heart still have beats that do not treasure Christ. 
Your only hope is in Jesus' work. He clears all that up with God because of his own righteousness. Now this passage serves as a real come to Jesus moment. If you haven't repented of your own sin, your own mess, your own evil, turn to Jesus and said, I can't solve this, I want you to solve it. Now is the time. You can turn to God and say, I'm not perfect. I stand judged. I can't climb out of this. But you can pull me out in Jesus. Now is the time to cry out to him. He will save you. He will deliver you in spite of your sinfulness. This passage reminded me of a moment in the life of the prophet Ezekiel. You remember Ezekiel? Consider this challenge. We all have our challenges today, but this prophet Ezekiel, his job, his role, his reason for being mentioned in the Bible was he had to tell an entire rebellious nation that they stood judged in the flesh. They stood condemned. They needed to come to God. That's a tough job. Ezekiel did it well. And Ezekiel pointed forward to a time when even the greatest of rebels could know the Lord. Read this. Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 40. Now, he talks like a prophet. He uses poetry. You can dig all that. Just roll with it. Listen to what he says. For on my holy mountain, he's looking forward, the mountain height of Israel declares the Lord God, they're all the house of Israel. All of them shall serve me in the land. Now he's talking to a country that has rebelled, and yet he's saying, these people will serve me. There I will accept them. and There I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. Look at verse 41. To the rebels, he says, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. I talked about a cookout a minute ago. If you're like most people, you love the smell of the grill. Meat's cooking. You love it. Take that delight. Maybe you like mushrooms cooking. Whatever it is. Take that delight. Multiply it by 10,000. And you haven't even begun to creep up on how much delight God has in you. As his child. Like a pleasing aroma. God will accept you. I'll bring you out from the peoples. And gather you out from the countries. Where you've been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you. In the sight of the nation. Verse 42. And you shall know that I am the Lord. How? When I bring you out of the land of Israel. The country that I swore to give your fathers, And there. Listen to this. There you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourself and you will loathe yourself for all the evils that you have committed. How can God take a people who hate themselves for all of their sinful ways and gather them to himself? 44, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I deal with you, for my name's sake. I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways. See that? He's not treating people what they deserve. He's not giving them what they deserve. He's giving them what Jesus Christ has earned. The only way that rebels can come to a holy God is if they are covered with the holiness of Jesus himself. And Jesus does that in his sacrificial Death. I'm not going to deal with you according to your corrupt deeds, declares the Lord God. Oh, for the hope we have in Jesus. One pastor named Dave Reynolds, he talks about this passage that we just read in Ezekiel, and he says, he says these words. It's staggering. To think about what God is saying. Ezekiel's looking forward to a day when God will accept a people who are conscious of their own sins and their shortcomings and who even loathe themselves because of these things. And God says that they will know that He is Lord. In other words, they'll know that He is Lord when He grants them mercy and grace 
in the face of their evil ways and corrupt deeds of which they are so personally conscious. What Ezekiel prophesies has been fulfilled in Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus ascended to heaven and he sent the Spirit, a Spirit who convicts the world of sin. We who have received Jesus and the Spirit, we remember our formal, former, former sinful ways and we're ashamed, ashamed of our previous way of life. And yet God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He's been merciful. He's been gracious. He has forgiven our iniquity and our transgression and our sin, even without clearing the guilty, because our guilt was paid by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This right there is your cup of hope this morning. I hope you drink it at the foot of the cross. Through the work of Jesus, God promises to make you alive in the Spirit, fully accepted as a member of His family. He calls you to self-denial this morning, and all the while He's empowering it by the work of Christ. So even today, as you start your week, take Jesus as your example in self-denial, suffering. I know that's terrible news. I know we don't like to suffer. But deny yourself. And through this denial, you will be able to treasure Jesus and trust that He will one day make you alive after death with Jesus forever. This is terrible good news. Let's pray together. God, may you make us now pricked with a hundred holes so that we're like sponges, so that we drink up the gospel, so that we know if we trust and call out to Jesus and treasure Him, you have covered all of our sin. And it's worth it to deny ourselves in order to treasure Jesus and to do your will, God. Inspire us, transform our minds with the truth of the gospel in this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.